It's going to be three points altogether. The first thing we see in the passage this morning in the spirit of big things is the big ifs. The big ifs. Paul wrote in verse 1, so if, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, we will get to where he is going with this in just a second. He's going somewhere with this. But these four if statements are worth pausing and pondering on. And it's important to note that Paul is not pondering on the potential reality of these four statements. He knows the truth. Paul is not, Paul is not saying, well, there could be uh, encouragement in Christ. There could be comfort from love. There could be participation in the Spirit. There could be affection. No, he knows that these things are a certain reality amongst the life of believers. He knows the truth of what he's saying. He's, starting, he's getting ready to build his point, to build an argument to go forward. You don't have to dive far at all into any of Paul's letters to know that he affirms the encouragement believers have in Christ. You don't have to dive very far at all to see that there is comfort and love that we see written by the Apostle Paul, or participation in the Spirit of God in the lives of believers, or the ever-present reality of affection and sympathy in our lives as well. These four phrases are not potential realities. They are certainties for us this morning. Can I, can I phrase this another way for us? Every time I read this passage, I think of four questions. You, you already know the questions, right? Is there encouragement in Christ? Is there comfort from love? Is there participation in the Spirit? Is there affection and sympathy? Are each of these things present in the lives of believers in Christ? And the answer is a big, resounding, certain, reliable, everlasting yes. Those things are present in your life as a believer in Christ. In the first verse of this chapter alone, we find the comforting words of the truth that each Christian experiences as a believer. And that's, and that's not even the main thrust of where Paul is going with this. This is just the beginning of his exhortation to, our exhortation to convince his readers of what he wants them to know and to do. He knows the reality of the ifs that he writes. And so do the Philippian Christians that he is writing to. It's not lost on them either. And from there, Paul launches into the command he asks for them. This is where we're going to camp out for a hot minute. Brings us to our second point. We're going to look at the big commands. The big commands. Where is Apostle Paul? Where is he going from verse 1? When to verses 2 through 4 he writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, this is the direction that Paul is traveling towards from verse 1. It's unity among the believers in Christ. Perhaps the reasoning for Paul's words here is that there is some sort of division within the body of Christ at the church in Philippi. We already know from the fourth chapter that there is at least two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who, are, who have been admonished to come to a peace with each other in the Lord. We can infer from the third chapter that there's perhaps some outside forces looking to cause strife within the church. He says in the second verse there in chapter 3, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Certainly could be a reference to 
uh, Judaizers who are trying to influence from the outside or perhaps even have infiltrated from the inside and trying to cause division there. So perhaps the reasoning for this entire passage then is a call for unity among these believers at Philippi. And maybe, just maybe, unity was a hard thing for them to come by. We wouldn't know anything about that, certainly. But I'll tell you right now, many other churches do know a little something-something about the struggle for unity amongst their body. There are many factors and forces that threaten to tear and pull at the unity of a church. And primarily one of those forces is us. We are sinful creatures. We are prone to the things of our flesh. And that's just the reality of our lives. And when you get a bunch of sinful, fleshly folks living in community with one another, well, there's going to be times when things are a little bit weird, or people are at odds. Perhaps there is outright fighting in the church, but perhaps there is something more sneaky, more sinister. Perhaps there is gossip and slander threatening to tear apart the unity. Perhaps there is envy. Perhaps there is a quiet sort of anger that builds and builds until it overflows. And although these things are terrible things to behold within the church, they are a present reality that many churches must contend with. And that's not even to begin with, because we really don't have the time today to get into it, with the, the influence that Satan and his scheming has within the church as well, and in his mission objectives towards the church. But the big question here is, and I think the Apostle Paul is going to answer it for us this morning, how does a church, how does a body of believers overcome the things that threaten their unity? I believe we see the answers in verses 3 through 4. Look with me, if you will. Uh, do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's how the translators of the English Standard Version of the Bible wrote it. The official ESV. Well, do you want to know how the other ESV translates it? The Evan Sheridan Version? Well, let me, let me hit you with it. Stop thinking so much about yourself and what you want and start putting the needs of others before your own. I like what C.S. Lewis said about it. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility does not detract from your intrinsic value as a human being, but it adds to the value of others. Humility that leads unto unity is a big deal, not only to the Apostle Paul as he writes as an individual inspired by the Spirit of God, but also to the very heart of God himself. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, we see the words penned, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Again, Paul is going to write in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. John chapter 17, verse 23, Jesus said, 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That was his words as he was praying for his disciples, as he was praying for us as well. Galatians chapter 3, again the Apostle Paul, verses 26 to 28, says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. Let's not, let's not be confused about that, okay? There are still genders, okay? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, pointing again and again and again to the unity that we are called to experience and have among the body of believers. What if, what if unity among believers is a far bigger deal than we realize? Is our unity as a church so important that we must agree to lay aside our own motives, our own selfish decisions and desires in order to obtain the unity among the body of believers? The answer to that question is yes. It is that important. It is enough for us to say, if I must lay aside my desires, my flesh, my cravings, my wants, my so-called needs in order to fulfill the needs of others, if that is so important, then I must do so. Most of the time, if we're being honest, and, and this, is where, this is where I think we all tend to kind of fall into this category of, right? Most of the time, our response to someone's need is appropriate to whether we can fulfill it without too much convenience or, co- or inconvenience or cost to us. You might, you might think to yourself, who's going to take care of me if I'm pouring myself out for others? Y'all, I... Uh, I met with two teenage boys yesterday morning to record an episode of a podcast for them. There's probably like 10 people who listen to it, right? Their moms probably listen to it, right? And then I'm going to listen to it, so that's like three, right? But we were talking about this passage, and we were talking about uh, unity and and taking care of one another, and one of them, a very wise 18-year-old said, you know, Evan, I heard it said one time that if everybody in the church is focused on taking care of each other's needs, then nobody will ever have to worry about whether their needs will be met or not. If we're all focused on caring for one another, loving one another, fulfilling the needs of one another, then in theory, in a perfect world, no one goes without. No one goes in need. See, the beautiful part about unity in the church is that when everybody is on the same page about serving and caring for one another, then no one within the body actually goes without their needs being taken care of. They are all caring for each other. I believe we see this illustrated in the book of Acts. If you would, it's not going to be on the screen, but Acts chapter 4. I'd like to read that for you this morning. It's only a couple of verses. It's Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. 32 through 35. I hear some pages turning, so I'll I'll give you all just a second. I'm going to care for you in that regard. I don't want you to get left behind. I don't want to start reading. Y'all, I'll be there, okay? 
Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. You might have a subheading there that says, They had everything in common. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, now there's a practical side to this, I think. And we can, we can have a conversation about cultural practicalities outside in the parking lot if you, you know, want to disagree with me. But the main idea, the main thrust is clear. When the body of believers love and care for one another, they will sacrificially serve one another to meet each other's needs. Those who have much will give much. Those who serve will serve. And those who love, we will love. When we care for each other, considering others as being more important than ourselves, then our own needs will be cared for as well. And this is so, it's so countercultural that it actually seems a bit radical. But do you, can I point out something to you this morning? It's exactly what Jesus did for us. I mean, you, you can't paint a more clear picture of sacrificial love without looking at the life of Jesus Christ. So that brings us to our final point for this morning, and perhaps the most beautiful of the truth, right? We're going to look at the big Savior. The big Savior. And there's, there's two little sub-points to this I really want to point out. Verses 5 through 11 there's kind of two divisions here. Verses 5 through 8, we see Christ the servant. Okay? And then verses 9 through 11, we see Christ the Lord. And, and y'all, I'm not trying to be fancy here. Okay, I just want us to grasp the big deal that Paul is going to make out of Jesus. He's going to make much out of him. It is, it is very likely that verses 5 through 11 are actually part of an ancient hymn that the early church sang. And, and can I just say that you can leave it to a preacher to quote song lyrics in the middle of a sermon? Like, this is what the Apostle Paul does, right? He quotes a, he quotes a song lyric. And there's part of me that can respect that. Because I've been known to do the same thing. I may not do it in this sermon, okay? Y'all don't hold me to that. But, but he's going to quote this ancient hymn in the middle of his writing, and he's going to use it to make a point. He does so for good reason. He wants to illustrate and connect the life of Jesus Christ to the lives of the Philippian Christians as they love and serve one another. He wrote in verses 5 through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not a quiet death where he was of old age, but death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." 
There's so much to say about these, verse, about these verses in regards to the person and character of Jesus. Many pastors have spent whole sermons just working through, through parts of these verses, okay? But we need to seek to remember the main purpose for why Paul is putting down this ancient hymn for the Christians in Philippi to read. He is exhorting them. He is commanding them. There is an imperative there to unity and to humility. And what better example is he to draw from than the person and life of Jesus Christ? Jesus embodied perfectly, without sin, true humility. He truly loved and served others first. And, and we really need to put that in the present tense of our understanding. He truly loves and serves others still. Verse 6 speaks to the divinity of Jesus Christ. As I was reflecting this week, this week and researching, it struck me, perhaps more poignantly than usual, that Jesus could have had all the glory, all the honor, all the wealth, all the power, all the riches He could have ever wanted while He worked, walked on earth in His flesh. I mean, He is God in the flesh, after all. He had authority over creation, even over life and death. He calmed the wind and seas. He healed lepers. The point I'm trying to make is it would not have taken very much for him to become the most powerful ruler to ever exist in human history while he walked here in his flesh. And at one point, the people were ready to put him on a war horse and send him with an army to overthrow Rome. And he could have done it very easily since he is God in the flesh. But verse 6, and, and really you see it in the Gospels as well, revealed that conquering the world conquering Rome, becoming this earthly king in the present time was not his heart, was not his purpose. His heart was not to consider, or his heart was to not consider equality with God as a thing for him to grasp. When you, when you look at this word grasp, there's this idea there of taking something that doesn't belong to you. Now, now, we could say today that Jesus certainly does deserve the full authority and honor and power and riches and wealth and holiness and righteousness of God. He has God in the flesh. But it's something to say of his heart that while he was here on earth, he considered a thing that he would not be able to take hold of because his purpose was not in coming to be king. His purpose was in coming to save sinners. He washed his disciples' feet, even as they were arguing about who would be the greatest among them. He cared for the sick and for the hurting. He brought a little girl back from the dead. He was accused of being friends with sinners. He said the words, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He served and loved others. And he would die in accordance to his Father's will. This is the heart of Christ. A servant who put others first. And this is the type of sacrificial servanthood that we are called to as believers in Christ. So what is the result of Jesus' servanthood status? And how does it relate to the Philippian believers? And how does it relate to us today? Look with me in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Remember a moment ago when I mentioned that about how Jesus, when He walked on earth, could have had all the power and riches and fame He could have wanted? 
Well, he's going to get it. It only comes after his suffering. It comes post-resurrection. And it's not a man-made or man-given type of authority and power. It's not an authority that's going to go away with the changing of political parties or the changing of a new king on the throne, new, new sheriff on the block, right? It is an authority and power that is God-given. We see in verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We need to recognize that his authority comes from the Father, does not come from man. God exalted him, gave him that name, which is above every name. And where the text mentions that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of folks who will take that literally. There's a lot of folks who don't. I, I don't think you miss the point of the text either way, whether you consider that literal or not. Because the point of the text is that the ancient hymn is telling us that Jesus holds all the power and all the authority, and every single thing throughout all of creation will be subject to him. There will be no one, I think this is the point of it, there will be no one, not even a single person, who will be able, who will be able to resist him or overthrow him. He will hold absolute power over all because of his God-given authority. And this, this is not something that should terrify us. Of course, that is, if you are in Christ, it shouldn't terrify you. If you are not in Christ, it, it should put you at least a little bit nervous, okay? Pro- probably more so than that. But rather, as a believer in Christ, reading that one day Christ will be, and really He is today, but we're going to see that manifest. We're going to see that realized more acutely, uh, that there is coming a day where He is in full control. It is a comfort for believers to know that the laying down of our lives to serve others will not be in vain. For there is coming a day in which every wrong will be made right. Sin and death shall be no more. There shall be no more tears, no more pain, no more heartache, no more fear, no more sickness or illness, no more folks taking advantage of one another, no more lawlessness amongst the people. A day which he returns, Christ the Lord. And because Christ is Lord, and when he comes the second time, it will not be in the humble circumstances of a manger born in Bethlehem, it will be in the triumphant circumstances of him as king over all creation. So how does this apply to us? We share in his inheritance as God the Father's adopted children in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17 says, The Spirit Himself, and that's Spirit with a capital S, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I don't want to, I want to be able to put a a neat little bow tie on this without making you feel like I'm not giving you the whole story. Because there will certainly be a continuation of this next week as we explore verses 12 through 18. Okay, so go ahead and mark your calendar. Come on back. I know it's Memorial Day weekend, but y'all don't need to celebrate, you know, y'all don't, well, we need to celebrate Memorial Day, but y'all don't need to be out of town for that, okay? All right, y'all don't need to be out of town. Y'all need to be, come on back to church, okay? It'll be fun. 
but it is suffice to say, like, what, what's the big deal then? What, what can I take away from this? If I were to put a, nice little, a neat little bow tie on this, something I could walk away with and apply as soon as I get home, what is it? I just want to remind us this morning, and I'm reminding myself as much as anybody else, that we have been called, following the example of Jesus, to count each other. And maybe this is the point where we all look around and start looking at each other and go, but that person is more important than me. And that person is more important than me. And that person, yeah, they're more important to me too. Count each other as more important than even ourselves and to serve each other with the same sacrificial attitude as Christ the Lord. I pointed out in the, uh, the podcast yesterday that maybe perhaps American Christians will not have to give their lives in service to one another. But the Christians living during the Philippians' time certainly did. And so the words right there that Paul quoted humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that would have very much been a present reality among them. That was the level of sacrifice that they were called to serve and to love one another. Harvest. And and I could say this for any church anywhere. If we could just get a fraction of that sacrificial attitude for one another, how much more, how much more beautiful how much more Christ-like, how much more how much more focused will our gatherings be as we walk together in unity, as we serve the risen Lord together, as we give sacrificially for the sake of the body of Christ. Pray with me, please. Lord, we look to your example to see the life that embodies perfectly sacrificial love. And Lord, we see it not only in the way that you lived, but also in the way that you died. Going to the cross on behalf of sinners that by your blood we would be saved. Lord, may we may we just catch a small part of that love and sacrifice in the way that we look to one another. Help us to love each other with the same love that you have for us. Help us to care and to sacrifice for each other, to count each other as being more important than ourselves in the same regard that you did and still do. Lord, this morning as we sing in response, I pray, God, that you would move and work in each heart. Lord, that you would draw sinners to conviction, that they would confess Christ as Lord. And Lord, that you would convict believers as well to look at their own lives and to see where where they land in all of this, Lord. Are we serving sacrificially? Do we love one another? Our Lord, is this, or is this just part of my daily, my weekly routine? May we be a people who puts you first above all else. May our love for you grow. 
And may you, God, grow our love and our service towards one another. Thank you for the cross, which you blood and died to take on our sin, that we could be saved and know you and be your children. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.